So Daniel breaks up into two sections. The first section is chapters 1 through 6, which narrate the stories of the characters Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. Stories in which they are delivered from danger and vindicated as God's faithful servants. Second half of the book, chapters 7 through 12, there are apocalyptic visions and prophecies about the future. Uh, And there are big debates concerning all kinds of authorship and historical questions surrounding surrounding the book of Daniel, particularly the um, uh, trustworthiness of the prophecies in chapters 7 through 12. If you're the kind of person who likes to delve into those issues, I can direct you towards a voluminous body of literature where you can explore that. Um, The approach that I'm taking in Daniel is this. Though the events that are narrated in this story have a whimsical and and, um, kind of fanciful quality to them, nevertheless, they do in fact tell us things that actually happened. And they do in fact demonstrate that God is sovereignly in control of all things large and small, all things fantastic and ordinary. And the whole story of the book really is to show that God is in control and God will vindicate his faithful servants. Last thing I want to say before we read, the book of Daniel is, uh, fittingly, Shelton spoke earlier about exile. It's exilic literature. It, along with Esther, Ezekiel, parts of Jeremiah, um, all cover the time in Israel's history when she was exiled from her homeland and relocated by force to the, uh, deported into the most powerful nation of the world at that time, Babylon, into a culture that was very hostile to biblical faith. And one of the questions we're going to consider as we work through the book is how do we live um, in a post-Christian society as we do, uh, in a place that is increasingly difficult and hostile to biblical faith? How do we live lives of faithful, loyal integrity to our Lord Jesus Christ? Um, We're going to at least explore that question. I don't know that we're going to get a comprehensive answer to it from the book of Daniel, but we will will see how they answered that question in their historical, cultural moment, and we will find certainly principles which can be transferable to our own. And we'll cover some of that today. Daniel 1, 1 through 21. In the third year of the reign of... Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief officials gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. 
But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the officials told Daniel, you know, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine uh, they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. You are a king. And you want to subjugate another people, another country, but you do not want to spend all the time, energy, money, resources necessary to uh, put your army in this other country and occupy it with a permanent military presence. So how can you bring another, a foreign nation to bend and bow to your will and become a vassal state underneath you without using your military 24-7. Well, here's one idea. Why don't you do this? Why don't you take the best and the brightest from that country, bring them back to yours, assimilate them, enculturate them, and then send them back out, no longer as Jews, but as Babylonian Jews or as Jewish Babylonians. That is, in fact, what happened. In the year 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to the city of Jerusalem. He captures and deports 10,000 Jews, which was a portion of the overall population of the city. Uh, And the people that he chooses to deport at this time as prisoners of war were uh, the, the royalty, the professionals, priests, craftsmen, the wealthy, basically the upper class of society, the people in power, and uh, he takes these as prisoners of war back to Babylon to be assimilated into Babylon. And the question that was facing these 10,000 exiles was, well, what do we do now? Uh, How do we relate to our Babylonian captors? How, how, what should be our posture and, uh, our posture and orientation towards Babylonian society and culture. Should we, I mean, do kind of the MLK Jr. thing? Adopt a posture of of nonviolent resistance? Should we do the separatist thing? Should we separate from them? 
Should we not fraternize with the enemy? Should we um, not cooperate with them? So originally, the exilic community that goes back to Babylon does take a posture of separatism. They end up residing, living outside, on the outskirts of the city of Babylon, away from the center of the population, uh, along a canal that fed, fed into the city. But the prophet Jeremiah, who was back in Jerusalem at the time, because Jer- Jerusalem had not fallen completely, got word of what was going on with the exiles. And so he writes a letter to the exiles to correct them on their posture towards, towards, as exiles toward this culture. In Jeremiah 29, verse 4, here's what he writes. This is what the Lord says to the exiles in Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and daughters and give them, sorry, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile and pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. That's the last thing they probably had in their minds to go off into the land of your captors and be actively engaged in the civic life, to go there and pray for your captors and promote the common good. It says, seek the peace of the city, the shalom of the city. Um, add to the, seek the prosperity of the city, so add to the economy. I, you can only imagine this would have been absolutely astounding for them to hear and probably the last thing they were expecting God to say to them at this moment in their lives. And yet what happens, this becomes a blueprint, I think. Something of a blueprint for Daniel's life and the way that Daniel ends up interacting with pagan society because he ends up having a very purposeful engagement in non-believing um, non-Christian, non-Jewish, um, hostile society uh, um, on, on the whole. So we're going to look at that. How many of you, here's a question, how many of you back in kids' Sunday school learned the song, Dare to Be a Daniel? Anybody? Nobody wants to admit it. <laughs> Dare to be a Daniel, right? Dare to take a stand, Dare to have a purpose. I, Susie, why didn't we have them do Dare to be a Daniel instead of Mighty to Save? Um, dare to draw a line in the sand. And that's what it is highlighted from chapter 1 of Daniel, right? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say no. They say no to the, the food from the king's table. They, but what they did not teach you in that song, and they failed to teach you in kids' Sunday school class, is the fact that they said yes Three times before they said no. What gets overlooked is the remarkable degree of acceptance and willingness they showed in integrating into pagan society. And what I want to do is highlight the three yeses, because the three yeses are hardly ever talked about. Um, Highlight the three yeses before we go to the one very consequential no. First off, they said yes to... Brian Fry will get a kick out of this. They said yes to the University of Babylon, the U of B, you know, the home of the fighting lions. Uh, they said yes to a first-class secular education. 
in Babylonian language, philosophy, literature, science, history, and astrology. I say that, you know, a little tongue-in-cheek, but um, they did. They said yes to... Uh, they learned in their divination classes how to read the entrails of animals and how that will forecast the future. Uh, they learned how to predict dreams or interpret dreams which would predict the future. They um, actually, Mesopotamian culture, civilization, the Mesopotamian civilization was one of the most advanced civilizations in, in, in the world, in the ancient world. They, they had made great achievements in literature, mathematics, astronomy, and science. There was probably much at the University of Babylon that you could say was a positive human achievement in knowledge. But then, of course, there would have been a whole lot at the University of Babylon that would have been riddled with polytheism, with magic, with the occult. With They were really big into astrology. And so when you, were, you get on to rate my professor, how do you rate your Babylonian education? It would have definitely been a mixed bag for them. Much of it from the viewpoint of Judaism would have been offensive and idolatrous because it was based on a religious cultural worldview, fundamentally at odds with the Bibles. Yet these Jewish students learned it, and they learned all of it. They, you could say they became experts in the language and literature of Babylon, the leading secular thinkers of that day, because it says later on that they they were known um, among all of their fellow students as being some of the most exemplary in their classes. So, what does that mean for us then, Brad? Are you saying that Christians ought to go to secular colleges and ought to pursue secular education? No, I'm not saying one way or the other as far as that's concerned. Here's the perennial difficulty that we have every time we read narrative in the Bible. The perennial difficulty is distinguishing between what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. What is the Bible just narrating to us a series of events? And when is the Bible subtly nudging us to uh, follow and imitate the events that are are narrated. You know, just because a godly person in the Bible does such and such a thing doesn't mean that God is prescribing that same activity for us, right? There's plenty of times it would be completely foolish of us to try to replicate or duplicate the actions of a biblical character. But then there are some times when we're, we are being nudged to do so. And, and the big challenge is figuring out, well, when is when? When is prescriptive? And, and when is descriptive? When is prescriptive? Likewise, the posture that God's people take towards the empires that they live in, how much of that is descriptive and how much of that is prescriptive? Because obviously, these Jews who were exiles, had they were fairly integrated and assimilated into Babylonian culture. Their relationship to the Babylonian empire looks kind of different than their relationship to the Persian empire, which comes next. When, once they head back to the city of Jerusalem and they're trying to build up the walls of the city, they tend to be far more separatist then than they do right now. Oh, is that giving us a description of, or a prescription for how we ought to relate to the American empire that we live in? Those are questions that are very difficult to um, determine. One thing I am certain of, though, is I am certain we tend to take our modern issues and read them back into the text in order to get out of the text 
an answer to a question that we already have answered for ourselves. For example, I have, I have read a number of people who've used Daniel's education as a proof text to be pro-public school. Um, everybody should pursue a public school education or a public school college education. Then on the other side, I've heard just the opposite, that, that you should actually be pro-private Christian school because the argument goes, obviously they had a very strong Israelite education that enabled them to cope with Babylon's university core curriculum. You know, you can get, you can use a Bible text to, to end up um, kind of saying whatever you want it to say. <laughs> If the Bible text isn't actually asking that question to begin with. At the very minimum, we should be aware of our tendency to do that. We, we are very inclined to try to get the Bible to agree with a position that we already hold to. Right. So, yes, they said yes to the language and literature of Babylon. Uh, they said yes to, secondly, the change of their names, which... I'm a, I'm a little shocked that they did this. Look with me at their names for just a moment. Daniel's name means in Hebrew, God is my judge. So the word basically, A-H in every Hebrew name, or Ayah, I-A-H, that is always a reference to Yahweh. And L, E-L in every Hebrew name, that is a reference to God. Well, Daniel's name means God is my judge. It gets changed to Belteshazzar, which means, O lady, wife of the god Bel, protect the king. That's a bit of a downgrade as far as your name is concerned. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is. And Azariah means Yahweh is my helper. And those names, which are names especially in the Bible, reflects something of our personal identity, those names get changed to basically taking on the names of Marduk, Bel, and Nebo, the Babylonian moon god. You might say, well, they were POWs. They didn't have a choice. They had to say yes. But actually, they did have a choice. Kind of the whole book of Daniel is based upon the fact that they did have a choice to and they, on a couple of very important occasions in chapters 3 and chapter 6, they refused when they exercised their choice. Um, they could have taken the path of total refusal from the beginning, which would have likely led to their martyrdom. Chapters 3 and 6 show us that they were prepared to die for their faith if necessary. So yes, they did have a choice, but but presumably, they believe that this changing of their names and this deep assimilation program that they were part of was somehow not compromising their souls. Thirdly, and then finally, maybe the most surprising of the three is their willingness to serve in a corrupt, a, a corrupt, a corrupt political regime. They are members of the Nebuchadnezzar administration. They actually rise up to the level of members in his cabinet. Uh, they, will, they will do that for the rest of the story. I mean, they'll be like, one's the Department of Interior, Secretary of the Interior, one's Secretary of State. Uh, I, I don't talk about politics very much from the pulpit, virtually never, and I'm not trying to make a modern political statement here. I just find it remarkable that they would be willing to serve the king, this king, 
this king in this administration, this king who had snatched them out of their homes, who had not yet destroyed completely the, the city of Jerusalem, but would eventually go through and destroy the whole thing. Um, the king who at the end of the book of Jeremiah, it's clearly prophesied that Babylon will be judged by God. They would serve this guy. Who would have ever thought that daring to be a Daniel meant making your way up the echelons in a pagan government to cabinet-level positions in a wicked administration, yet doing so in a distinctly uh, uh, believing manner as a believer in the God of the Bible? I, I didn't know daring to be a Daniel meant that. <laughs> Sounds a whole lot like another song that was never created. Dare to be a Joseph in Egypt. Or dare to be an Esther in Persia. See, the Bible ends up having a number of these stories. They're called royal court stories. Dare to be a Nehemiah in Persia. Um, all of these stories are how God puts his people into pagan governments, into positions of influence and power for the sake of two things. Number one, to protect his people. And number two, to promote the common good. So that happens with Daniel, with Joseph, with Esther, with Nehemiah. There's probably more than I'm not even thinking of. And I'm not saying that that is prescriptive for every Christian today. But what I am saying is that's how God did it. It's remarkable that he wrote that same dare-to-be-a-government-official story several different times through the course of, of his history. Just saying. <laughs> So yes to education, yes to intense enculturalization and their name change, and yes to political service. One of the reasons I decided to preach on Daniel is there are some fabulous pictures of Jesus Christ in the book of Daniel. In chapter 2, we're going to see that Jesus is the stone that is thrown at this huge statue. Jesus is the stone that topples all the kingdoms of this world. In chapter 3, I think he is the fourth figure who's walking there in the fiery furnace with these guys. In chapter 6, where Daniel's in the lion's den, I think Jesus is the greater Daniel who ends up walking out of pay attention to the stone that's rolled in front of the lion's den. He walks out of a, a tomb that is covered by a stone a, a tomb of death, and he comes out alive. In chapter 7, Jesus' favorite re reference to himself is, I am the Son of Man. We discover the Son of Man in chapter 7. But here we are in chapter 1. What's, where is Jesus in chapter 1? I want you to remember, how was it that Satan tempted Jesus when he was in the wilderness? What did he try to do to cripple his faith? He tried to get him to eat food that, he, that Jesus refused to eat. I think that's what's going on here. What is it about this food from the king's table that Daniel refuses to eat it, just like Jesus refused to eat the food from Satan? And scholars are divided on the issue. Some say the food was unclean because maybe it had pork in it. And it was non-kosher. It was unclean food that a Jew was just not allowed to eat because it didn't fulfill kosher laws. Some say the food from the king's table had been offered to idols. So because of its connection to idolatry, they wouldn't eat it for that reason. Oh, by the way, the kosher part, I don't think that makes sense because 
wine. They refused to drink the wine from the king's table, too. And wine was never part of the kosher regulations. Um, Some say that it was because if you take the king's coin, you give the king his due. And they didn't want to pledge absolute loyalty and fealty to King Nebuchadnezzar. In 2012, Saddleback Community Church, mega church down in Southern California, launched the Daniel Plan, a diet and exercise program designed to help its members cultivate, quote, a lifestyle based on the biblical story of Daniel. And then Pastor Rick Warren ended up writing and publishing a diet book called The Daniel Plan. Um, I think this is one of those instances where we're making a mistake between the descriptive and the prescriptive. It's not, you know, Daniel Daniel didn't just go to a vegetarian vegetarian diet because that's the healthiest lifestyle we can, oh, I'm going to get in trouble for saying that. (laughs) Vegans and vegetarians in our congregation, uh, you are welcome here. Yeah. But that's not, he's not prescribing for us a new diet book. For whatever reason, what I think is prescriptive is this matter of conscience. Their conscience, for whatever reason, these men said, I will not eat that food for the sake of my conscience. And you know, the Bible has a lot to say about honoring and obeying our consciences in the small things. The Bible also tells us that the conscience is not infallible. You know, our consciences are not always lined up with God's word. Sometimes we have a loose conscience that needs to be tightened. Sometimes we have a tight conscience that needs, needs to be loosened. But pretty much always, the Bible tells us, whatever conscience you've got, you better honor it. You better follow it. And you better train it according to the word of God. In his book, After Virtue... Philosopher Alistair McIntyre writes that we who live in Western civilization today, we are no longer governed by faith or reason. We are governed by what McIntyre calls emotivism, the idea that all moral choices are nothing more than expressions of what the choosing individual feels is pleasing to themselves. And I have, I tell you, I've met a lot of Christians who confuse emotivism and their conscience. They will come to me and they will say, Brad, in my heart of hearts, I know this is right. But really what they're saying is in my heart of hearts, this feels right because it can't be wrong if it feels so right. It's, it's emotivism. When I, when I say back to you, well, you say it feels right. Show me in the Bible what justifies this. Show me your conscience has been trained by the Bible. Usually they can't. The key for us, friends, is our consciences have to be subject to our loyalty to Jesus Christ. Our consciences need to be an appendage of our loyalty to the ascended Lord Jesus Christ so that when we make a moral decision, we can say with before Jesus' face that this decision is based on my loyalty to you. It's not based on my loyalty to myself or my loyalty to my emotions or my loyalty to Babylon. Because if you let Babylon, if you let her system and values and her definition of words and her delicacies begin to exercise control of you, you know, Babylon is poison. 
And the other thing that's a poison is yourself. Like the capital S, self. And if you let that be what controls your conscience, that is a poison. You can't, you can't live for yourself. At the end of the day, if you are a servant of Jesus Christ, the ascended Lord and Master, you cannot live for yourself. And if you could see yourself in 10,000 years, you would never even imagine, even think of really doing it because you'd see what, what it hurts you to do so. Uh, obeying a well-trained conscience and acting upon our moral convictions is, is, is essential. And showing vigilance in the small things, that is so important to us. You know, when the Babylonians come with their swords drawn and they say, renounce Yahweh or we'll kill you, you know, that's a clear choice that you have. But when it's something small like food, we're much more likely to compromise on our consciences and, and give in. One wonders, though, if they had given in here in chapter 1, would they have had the fortitude in chapters 3 and 6? Would they have been willing to go to the fiery furnace or go to the lion's den? If they had made the small compromises before, would they have had that kind of courage? I'm almost done. I, I want to point, though, to this question of conscience. And I said earlier, some of us have tight consciences that need to be loosened, and some of us have loose consciences that need to be tightened. Have you asked yourself, like, what about you? What about you? I've met a number of Christians who have um, really benefited from tightening their consciences. For instance, money. Uh, there are a few Christians that I have met who, who say, you know what, the Bible, I believe the Bible. And the Bible tells me the root of money is, uh, the, sorry, the love of money is the root of all evil and the money is dangerous. I believe them. I make $250,000, but my conscience says I can only live on 60, 60 of that. Like I'm purposely limiting myself because I don't want to be controlled by it. I want to, be, I want to give it away. I met other Christians who, uh, who said, I know that I'm free to utilize the internet 24-7. I know that I'm allowed to have an iPhone 10 and to spend plenty of time on it, but my conscience, I guess, it, it won't let me do so. And they, they, they draw the circle tighter for themselves as a way of protecting themselves. I've known some who dev, have done that with the news, they, they realize that like MSNBC or Fox News or whatever your news source of choice is, they realize that after they listen to that stuff for too long, they become a more fearful or angry person. So while they know that they have the liberty of freedom to watch the television, they choose to tighten it up. I've known some that have done that with the Sabbath. They say, I am, I'm not going to cut my lawn on the Sabbath because... Because my conscience won't let me. I want to set it apart. And I've done that with food and drink. Um, and maybe, you know what? I was all giving you all examples of tightening it. Maybe yours needs to be loosened. I just think probably in our community, if probably for the majority of us, ours needs to be tightened more than it needs to be loosened. Um, that's just my guess, my suspicion. But whatever it is, our consciences must first and foremost foremost. Be loyal to the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. To conclude, 
Uh, here's a great definition of wisdom. I think it's a good definition at least. Wisdom is knowing how to do the right thing in the right way at the right time for the right reasons. What's impressive about Daniel and his friends in conclusion is here you have a group of guys who have tremendous moral courage and fortitude. They're willing to act upon their consciences even at the possible great loss and detriment to their personal happiness. But they also have the wisdom to know how to execute that exercise of conscience. You and I probably have seen a bunch of some Christians who... It was very, they took a very courageous stand in their job for some kind of business-related issue or, or some principal issue. They took the stand, but they didn't have the wisdom on how to execute it properly, right? You notice how they, their posture here is very non-belligerent. Instead of saying, take your filthy food and wine and, and keep it away from me, they, they say, hey, can, let me propose a constructive alternative a constructive vegetable alternative. Um, I think they're being very wise. And God responded by vindicating their decision and blessing it. Verse 2. God gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. God gave him into the hand, which speaks of God's sovereignty over international powers. Then in verse 9, God gave Daniel favor and mercy before the official in charge, which speaks to God's personal sovereignty in the day-to-day course of life. And then in verse 17, God gave to these four men knowledge and understanding of the pagan culture and literature of Babylon. God was in control of each of these steps. He he was sovereign through it all. In verse 21, we finally get to the last uh, verse of the passage. It says, and Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. You know how long that was? King Cyrus ends up over dethroning Nebuchadnezzar 70 years later. And who ends up still being there, still fighting? God's servants. Daniel survives. Daniel remains. And so does Daniel's people. We have great confidence that because the Lord Jesus Christ has ascended to the throne of heaven, he is sovereign over all the events of our lives, and he is alone deserving of our total loyalty. Kingdoms rise and fall. God's people go on because Jesus' reign lasts forever. Amen.